Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. Today, in the third part of our series on the SoftBank Vision Fund, we're going to be talking about the big bet on WeWork. It's SoftBank's blurry vision. Previously in this series, we've introduced SoftBank's Vision Fund, the $100 billion venture capital fund poised as a massive bet into the future of technology. We've introduced Masayoshi Son, the founder of SoftBank, and his delightful slideshows about how humans will soon be living side by side with robots, and how SoftBank's investment is going to accelerate the onset of the singularity, and all that sort of thing. And last episode, we've discussed how SoftBank ploughed $20 billion into various ride-sharing and autonomous vehicle companies, nearly half of that going to Uber, which really poses as a tech company to get funding, but has an arguably very shaky and predatory business model, which relies on eating billions of dollars a year to continue operating. This episode, we want to discuss another company that SoftBank's Vision Fund ploughed over $5 billion into. If you add investments that were made by the parent company, SoftBank Group, then SoftBank has actually invested over $10 billion in just this one company. It's another company that posed as a tech company to justify a massively overinflated valuation. It's another company that, like Uber, had a business model that required burning unbelievable quantities of cash over time. And if all of this sounds familiar from last episode, just wait until you hear what happened to the founder. I'm talking, of course, about WeWork. Now, you've probably heard of WeWork. If you know the full story of what happened to this company, which has been reported in a lot of different places already, then you probably won't learn too much new from this particular telling of it. But it's absolutely of a piece with some of the SoftBank Vision Fund's daft investments, and a shining star in the tech bubble that was about to burst before COVID-19, and is sure to be utterly destroyed now. If you haven't heard of WeWork, or only vaguely know this story, then please, settle in for a wild ride. So what is WeWork? Well, it depends on who you talk to. Wikipedia, for example, says that WeWork is, quote, an American commercial real estate company that provides shared workspaces for technology startups and services for other enterprises. So essentially what WeWork do is rent out their own branded office space for tech companies to come and work in. They'll buy up office space, put a great deal of branding all over it. They will provide the desks, maybe the computers, the Wi-Fi, the office furniture, fancy things like glass whiteboards you can write on, and they'll pay for the upkeep of the space. And then with all these things taken care of, they will rent that office space out to people who want to use it, allowing them to concentrate on their work, and providing that sort of short-term contract or ability to share an office with other companies that might usefully allow a smaller venture to get off the ground. Okay, you might think, certainly doesn't seem to be impossible to make money in real estate. People need to rent offices. Perhaps that business model is going to be a lot more difficult in a post-COVID-19 world where most office work is being done from home and people don't need WeWorks anymore. But maybe, maybe before the pandemic it wasn't a terrible idea? But the issue is that WeWork never really billed itself as a real estate company. When you look at how it described in its S1 filing, the filing that companies have to produce when they want to go public and float themselves on the stock exchange, they describe themselves quite differently. The filing begins with an epigram. We dedicate this to the energy of we, greater than any one of us, but inside each of us. The company is essentially a kind of intermediate landlord that comes into rental office spaces and brands them a bit and then manages the workspaces for tech startups. This is the business model of the tech bubble, really. It depends on a constant stream of people spinning the wheel of various industries, throwing a dart at it, and deciding to create a startup that will disrupt that particular industry with a mobile app or a machine learning algorithm, or maybe both. And of course, it all depends on those startups getting an endless stream of happy venture capital so that they can pay their overheads towards renting the office space in the first place. So in other words, WeWork takes in huge amounts of venture capital investment to operate itself, and in some respects relies on more VC investment to try and pay for some of the rents of these properties. 
But WeWork doesn't want to be seen as a middleman operator between landlords, property owners and other companies, or indeed a real estate business at all. Instead, they use the word technology over 110 times in the very vaguely worded report about why you actually need WeWork and can't just rent an office like a normal person. It says, quote, We provide our members with flexible access to beautiful spaces, a culture of inclusivity, and the energy of an inspired community, all connected by our extensive technology infrastructure. While this focus on technology, again, there are a lot of similarities here between Uber and WeWork. It's not impossible to make money by getting people from A to B, in just the same way as it's not impossible to make money by renting out office space. The issue is that they're pretending to be tech companies, and promising that they will someday attain the kind of expansive and explosive growth that Amazon saw, or that they will attain the kind of monopoly on the market that they're entering into, through innovative and disruptive methods that other companies in a similar space can't achieve. Their business model essentially consists of hoodwinking investors into thinking they're going to be able to expand in a profitable way and make money from economies of scale, when the actual fundamentals of the industry that they're trying to disrupt don't really lend themselves well to scaling up like this. And because they need to start by being lost leaders to get to the market share that they think is necessary for the whole endeavour to work, they will burn through a lot of investor funds without ever making profit before potentially collapsing, as WeWork now has done. It's not necessarily that the service they provide is bad. It's just that these companies are coating themselves in this techno-optimistic, Silicon Valley, futuristic, exciting and disruptive veneer. They spout lots of stuff about the company's vision and philosophy, but when you look underneath, there's not actually that much innovation there at all. In the boom times, this has been a really productive way of parting venture capitalists like the SoftBank Vision Fund from their money, but it causes people to overestimate the core value of the business. As tech websites Recode and The Verge pointed out back in August 2019, quote, The Wii company's main competitor is IWG, a real estate company that's not pretending to be a tech company. IWG has had substantially more square footage and more customers, and has actually made a profit. Yet its market cap, that is to say the total value of its shares, is just 8% of what SoftBank's latest funding round thinks WeWork is worth. The Wii company isn't just a regular real estate company then, it's a real estate company that's taken a lot of money from SoftBank and other firms by just saying tech a lot. If you look at both companies in 2018, IWG took $3.4 billion in revenue and made $600 million in profit. WeWork took $1.8 billion in revenue and lost $1.9 billion in 2018. So in terms of revenues, WeWork is half the size of IWG and it's losing more money than it's taking in. You know, so it's only really recovering about half of its total costs. And yet WeWork was nominally valued in 2018 at $47 billion, while IWG was nominally valued at $3.7 billion. So you have to question here, what is WeWork doing in that it's losing money three times faster than IWG is making it, it's half the size of IWG in terms of revenues, and yet it's valued at 10 times more? So why is the more successful company capable of being valued at much, much less than the less successful company. Essentially, because WeWork has called itself a tech company, and clever marketing, hype around technology, Silicon Valley, and disrupting industries and other such jargon has caused investors to fling money at it, chief amongst them SoftBank and Masayoshi Son. SoftBank has essentially valued WeWork at more than 10 times a competitor that is a more successful business and that is a much better run and less risky business that has actually made money for many years. But it's WeWork's ability to benefit from this techno-hype and the belief in a Silicon Valleyified future 
that has allowed them to take so much money from SoftBank. The story of how the SoftBank Vision Fund came to invest $5 billion in WeWork is really so extraordinary. I'm going to quote it from the article that Victoria Turk wrote about it in Wired in August 2018. The article was called How WeWork Became the Most Hyped Startup in the World. It says, quote, When SoftBank first expressed interest in discussing business with founder of WeWork, Adam Neumann, Neumann insisted that Son should visit WeWork's headquarters in person. It wasn't because we were trying to be cheeky, he says. It's because a part of what we do is energy, and I can't put energy on a piece of paper. Initially, they had planned for a two-hour visit, and Neumann had prepared a presentation. That day, Son's team first told him that Son was running late and that he'd only have 90 minutes. They later corrected that to a half hour. He comes in and says, I only have 12 minutes. Go, says Neumann. Unable to make it even as far as his office, Neumann whisked Son around the small R&D area and walked him around one floor of office space. Son then invited him to join him in his car so that they could chat longer. During the trip, the two started sketching out a deal on an iPad. Neumann says he would have normally waited a few days and tried to wrangle a better offer. But that morning he had attended a spiritual class, and his teacher said that sometimes it is necessary in life to do the opposite of our nature. Neumann took the advice to heart. I took the pen, I said, today I'm not a negotiator, he recalls. I signed my name, his name, and that piece of paper ended up being the deal to a T. The agreement with SoftBank Group and SoftBank Vision Fund consisted of the $3 billion investment into WeWork and a $1.4 billion into three new companies, WeWork China, WeWork Japan, and WeWork Pacific. The deal cemented WeWork's valuation at that stage of up to $20 billion. Now you might think that if you were going to invest $4.5 billion worth of venture capital into a business, more money than pretty much anyone on the planet will see in a lifetime, it might be worth spending more than 12 minutes talking to the CEO. If you're busy, perhaps it's worth delaying the meeting by a few weeks. It might even be worth setting aside quite a considerable amount of time to consider the fundamentals of the business. It might indeed be worth doing quite a lot of due diligence to ensure that you weren't just wasting a colossal amount, propping up something that was fundamentally unprofitable and didn't really have any secret way of becoming profitable. And I'm sure that there were other people involved in making the decision, and that it took more than just this meeting into account. And yet, and yet, and yet. And yet, this story by Neumann and Son has been allowed to propagate and become this Silicon Valley legend, because there's almost this idea that all that is necessary is a pinch of magic dust that can turn some fundamentally unprofitable business in a competitive space into something that's worth 10 times its biggest competitor. The only way that you can sort of see that working is if you have these myths about things like, almost mystical in their nature of like, WeWork is worth more because of the energy. It's not even necessarily about technology, so much as it is this perception of an attitude, uh, an ability to disrupt that has not actually been proven on behalf of WeWork or indeed many of these companies that have it. And it's this branding as a tech company that has really allowed them to uh, part Masayoshi Son with so much money. So is there anything behind the hype about WeWork? Well, it's true to say that like Uber, it has grown rapidly into its new market. From 2016 to 2018, its revenue grew from $500 million to $1.7 billion. It's pretty impressive for a company to triple its revenue in the space of two years. That might make you feel like the company has expanded and it's on the verge of becoming profitable. But Uber's revenue has also grown year on year. It has also expanded into more markets and taken on more money. And all that's happened is that the rate at which it has loses money 
has increased. And this is, of course, part of the business model that is shared by Uber and shared by WeWork. It's probably fairly, okay, it's not easy, but it's fairly easy to triple your revenue if you're given massive cash injections at the start to expand into lots and lots of new markets. It's this whole attitude of move fast as you can and break things. Whereas, you know, a more traditional perception of how business works would be that you would work on getting a profitable business in one sector, and then you expand, and then you move out to different locations. Once you've figured out how to make profit doing something, you then have to scale that up. Instead, what WeWork and Uber have been able to do with the massive injections of capital that SoftBank has given them is scale up the rate at which they're losing money. And the issue is that almost all of the money that comes in to working on WeWork is immediately spent on the bare minimum required to run the business. From a Bloomberg profile in August 2019, quote, Last year in buildings that WeWork had up and running, the company recorded $1.5 billion in lease payments to landlords, plus costs for employees, utilities, real estate taxes, office cleaning, repairs and other expenses. This means that WeWork's revenue from operational office locations is scarcely higher than expenses for those locations, not including anything the company is paying for fixing up new locations that aren't open yet, or costs for employees not working on operating office buildings. End quote. So basically, because the margin that WeWork is making on its office rental business is so, so narrow, expanding into new regions doesn't actually help them to do anything. Expanding into new regions is not going to double or triple their profit overnight because they're not making any profit on this. They're basically just breaking even with this aspect of the business. And all of the stuff that's going into marketing, all of the stuff that's going into R&D, all of the stuff that's going into advertising, all of the stuff that's going into expanding to new locations is all losing them money by comparison to this. So again, like in the case of Uber, we can see that this isn't really an industry with economies of scale. It's not like a Facebook, Google, Netflix, or even an Amazon, where once you've got the infrastructure in place, it doesn't cost you much more to serve another customer. In the case of a Facebook or a Google, for example, where you're selling adverts, the people to advertise to is already there. So selling an additional advert is only going to cost you a fraction of a cent based on the amount of electricity or data that you need to store in some data center. Scaling to more and more customers is relatively easy compared to the profit that you're getting in. In the case of Netflix, if you have the infrastructure there to uh, deliver all the content to people, adding an extra user is not going to cost you much, but it is going to earn you quite a lot of money. But that's not the case in WeWork, where every time you want to add a new WeWork customer, you need a new WeWork location. Every operation you run in a business like this has this razor-thin profit margin, because as you expand the business, your expenses expand in just the same way. There is nothing inherently cheaper about renting office space in 10 cities instead of one. This is reflected in the actual amount of physical assets that the average tech company needs to have. Facebook is the type of tech company that deserves the branding of a tech company because it has $25 billion of physical assets in terms of server farms, offices, etc. But the company itself is valued at $525 billion. That's the kind of multiplier effect that allows you to grow rapidly without taking on debt because the company is worth 20 times more than its physical assets. Perhaps when Facebook only had 1 billion of physical assets, it was valued at 20 billion, which they can then use to purchase more assets and then grow, because they have that valuation and that money and that capital that they can raise things against to begin with. WeWork could never do that, because its actual value is not substantially more than the physical assets in terms of leases that it has purchased. 
the company would only ever be able to grow with substantially more capital to get more properties. And of course, if there's a market downturn and rents go down, the assets are worth less. Tech companies can make money through network effects. Every additional user on Facebook or Twitter is more eyes on adverts, more content generated by the users, more reasons for the next user to sign up because there's more people that they can talk to, more content they can consume. And it's more potential advertisers for the platform as well. In the case of Amazon, once they have their network of distribution factories, it doesn't actually cost them anything more to start serving an additional Amazon customer in the same neighbourhood as the rest of them. But they are making profit at that stage. But this simply isn't the case with WeWork. There's no real reason that more people using WeWork would allow WeWork to provide a better service. Nor can it really leverage the data from its users to provide them with a better service, like Facebook, Amazon or Google would do by surveilling you and your behaviours to serve you ads or product recommendations. Or to be more accurate, I suppose, to serve you to advertisers more effectively. For more on how effective some of these online advertising methods are, see our Patreon bonus episode on the attention merchants. But what is it that WeWork can do that's equivalent to what these other tech companies can do? Can it learn how certain kinds of people like their office? That's not the sort of effect that lets you print money in the way that other tech companies have. WeWork has expanded very quickly to cities around the world, but it has made a loss everywhere. It has managed to sustain itself by burning through billions of dollars to renovate these offices and purchase or lease them in advance, and undercut any existing competition. But somehow, positioning itself as a tech company and persuading certain people, mostly Masayoshi Son, that it will be the next Alibaba and disrupt the office space industry, it's managed to finance this undercutting expansion. Until the music stops. In case you don't think I'm being fair, I'm going to say, what is the technology that has allowed WeWork to describe itself as a tech company rather than just being honest and admitting that it's a real estate company, which would be in a different category and is never likely to get investment from someone like Song? Here's an interview with Andy Palmer of WeWork, who was the VP of product development there from early 2019, where he aimed to describe some of these innovations. He said, quote, One of our most popular tools is the WeWork member app, which we recently redesigned from the ground up in order to better meet the needs of our members. Launching this app was one of my proudest moments at WeWork. Beyond helping members with daily tasks such as booking conference rooms, our app now offers features that allow them to connect with each other, whether they're in the same building or across the world. The app uses machine learning on the back end to match requests with appropriate members based on the skills and interests they've provided. So, um... The technological innovation that was supposed to make WeWork worth $45 billion, more than 10 times the value of its closest market competitor, which actually turns a profit, is an app that lets you book conference rooms. Seriously, the idea that it's using machine learning to match you with other people with certain skills to aid collaboration is just not credible. You don't need machine learning to do that. You just need a search function. The only reason that machine learning has been mentioned there is to make it seem like some magical AI-enabled technology. I'm willing to bet that if machine learning is used at all in this app, it is totally redundant and could be achieved just as easily, if not much more cheaply, with a search function. Or anything that the machine learning is achieving is essentially redundant, and certainly not worth $45 billion. More to the point, if it comes to trying to connect to different people who have different skills, LinkedIn can already do that and has a customer base of many millions more people than just those who work at WeWork. Why should the company that you rent your office from determine who you collaborate with? 
And even LinkedIn is worth substantially less than anything WeWork has been valued at, and also appears to be a loss-making enterprise in itself. At the peak of its inflated valuation, you can give WeWork people as much as you might want to explain why it's a technology company, but all you sort of get is this vague techno-babble. Here is a spokesperson for WeWork quoted in the media when asked how they use technology. They said, quote, We provide our members with space, community and services through both physical and virtual offerings, all built on and powered by data, analytics and deeply integrated technology that helps people unlock creativity and productivity. We use technology to help us deliver WeWork space more efficiently, build a global community and improve the workspace experience for members around the world. For example, we built technologies to efficiently source, price and deliver locations around the world. These tools automate core tasks by moving manual management to digital systems, while allowing us to gather data at scale and apply machine learning to be more intelligent and expedient in our decision making. End quote. So, I mean, what have we got here? We've got powered by data, analytics and deeply integrated technology. Okay, doesn't actually mean anything. Um, they use technology to help them save money in deciding which offices to rent by getting machine learning to do it automatically? When you only have a few hundred locations at most, how much money does that really save you? Aren't there other services online that will tell you about which offices you can rent? Why does WeWork need to automate this process, and how is that saving them any money at all? It's all just vague techno-babble, really. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what any of these technologies are actually supposed to be. It would be perfectly possible to describe any business in the same way, saying that it's built on and powered by data, analytics, and deeply integrated technology. But when you can't think of what that technology is, that doesn't really tell you much about what's happening. There were some fun further tidbits in a wired profile of the company from before its collapse back in 2018. It said, quote, CETA shows me some examples of other technologies that WeWork is working on. There's a smart phone booth that knows when it's vacant or engaged, and a door that unlocks when he holds his phone to it. He's particularly excited about a proprietary smart sit-stand desk. At the moment, the desk has a sensor underneath that can tell when someone is using it. The next step, he says, is for it to recognise who is using it and offer them personalised features. He waves his WeWork ID over a card reader in the desk service and it automatically adjusts to suit his height. A fan plugged into a socket springs to life. You're going to give up a degree of anonymity and things will happen for you, he says. Another technology we work is experimenting with is facial recognition and sentiment analysis. Vano says that facial recognition could be used as an extra level of building security, or to turbocharge its community managers. For example, giving the on-duty manager a heads-up that someone new has entered the building. When I approach a laptop running a sentiment analysis program in the demo area, it identifies my face and notes that I'm female and wearing glasses. I try to make an awkward smile at the camera and get a high happy score. We're trying to uncover passive ways of understanding happiness, says Sita. He imagines cameras in a WeWork office tracking people's moods via their facial expressions, perhaps combined with listening devices that analyse the emotion in their voice patterns. End quote. None of these technologies ever made it to the mainstream use in WeWork companies, but you have to say, some of these things are just gimmicks, like, okay, a chair that adjusts itself automatically by detecting that you're sitting at it, or a, a fan that randomly switches on when you sit down at the desk. Um, again, it, 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 it's a gimmick that you wouldn't say would make your business worth 10 times more than the nearest competitor by itself. And then, of course, 
the best you can say about the stuff they have that actually does seem to start to work is that most of it is just going to allow managers to more effectively surveil their workers. As practical innovations, they're a long way away from the type of utopian vision for the future of office life and work that WeWork wants to sell itself as providing. Instead, your desk will automatically spy on the length of your toilet breaks and will offer you unspecified, personalised features when you sit down on it. And the surveillance thing, the, the sentiment analysis thing, without getting into the ethics of whether you want your boss to be determining whether you're happy or sad and what they might do with that information, you just have to question what is the purpose of this and why does it have to be developed by the company that is renting you your office? I mean, there are other software companies and machine learning companies that are developing similar software that market themselves to people and to office managers. It may well be in the future that if you ever work in an office again, you might be obliged to submit to this sort of surveillance that is going to, in a, in a quite untransparent way, we should say, because this is all the black box machine learning type technology where you never really know why it's classing you as sad or happy or angry or whatever. It, even if you have to subject to this, there's no reason it needs to be made by the company that is trying to sell you your office space when there are others who will provide exactly the same service and focus on that as their core competence. So when it comes to the few technologies that we know that WeWork actually was trying to develop for office life, it's hard to see how any of it really rises beyond the level of novelty tinkering and certainly how it justifies WeWork being valued at such an insane amount of money. And people did, I think, realise this at the time. Quoting further from the Bloomberg profile, quote, In short, everything about WeWork is utterly odd. It is a real estate company valued like a tech company. It is a young company with questionable economics that is committed to paying tens of billions of dollars in future years for office building leases. End quote. And this again is why investors should have looked at WeWork's actual business model with a great deal of concern. WeWork isn't a tech company. Their business model consists of renting office space, or occasionally buying it, from landlords for a long-term lease, and then hoping to make that money back by renovating the buildings and renting them out to their customers for lots of shorter-term leases at a markup. So it's, you know, it's not unlike buy-to-let, and it's worked very well for plenty of buy-to-let landlords, for example. But of course, it's not a recession-proof business model. If something happens that suddenly means that office space is a lot less valuable, like a global pandemic, for example, you are on the hook for all of these long-term leases with no actual short-term income from rents to pay for them. At least in the case of Uber, they actually shifted all of the long-term uh, rents onto the drivers who may have bought cars uh, on payment schemes to, so that they can drive them around as Uber vehicles. But the actual business model, of course, didn't matter. It certainly didn't matter to the founder, Adam Neumann, the guy who was on the other end of the meeting with Masayoshi Son. Again, this is quoting from a profile of WeWork after its disastrous collapse from The Atlantic. Quote, Adam Neumann's overblown vision for the Wii company is both the source of its success and the cause of its problems. Neumann has cited energy and spirituality as more relevant metrics for the potential on public markets than measures of its revenue and losses. The company, after all, was supposed to reinvent work itself. Neumann's leadership oversaw massive, rapid growth for the company, but it also seems to have been motivated largely by personal benefit rather than spiritual enlightenment. The Wii Company's Form S1 outlined a labyrinthine ownership scheme that would have given Neumann more than half the company's voting power. Multi-class stock has caused problems for Facebook, Google and other tech firms, but Neumann's attitude was more brazen still. He used his authority as CEO to pay himself $5.9 million for rights to use the new name, a change he had championed. 
He later returned that money under pressure before the company went public in its IPO. He poured tequila shots for employees after announcing layoffs. He bought stakes in real estate that WeWork later leased. He declared WeWork meat-free by Fiat in 2018, but failed to outline what that meant for its hundreds of offices and thousands of tenants. Rebecca Neumann, a WeWork co-founder and its former CEO's wife, served as both brand chief and impact officer, a title that underscores the company's proselytic ambitions, and also as CEO of the Wee company's private elementary school, We Grow, which is charging $42,000 in tuition for this school year. And no, we're not making this up. End quote. So you have to understand that a big part of this is really down to another thing that a lot of these pseudo-tech companies have in common, and it's something else that has been extremely destructive as a stereotype, and that's the myth of the founder. The fact that a set of founders, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and so on, have become famous, so publicly identified with their companies, and really hailed as visionaries who have reshaped the world. This has caused a lot of focus on companies with charismatic or visionary founders. In many ways, it's caused far more focus on the charisma, unusual, or visionary nature of the founder than the actual fundamental technological advances that have been made and the way that the company intends to make money. Naturally, this mythologizing of how founders work has been written about very widely, but is an extremely damaging stereotype. You need look no further than Theranos, whose founder, Elizabeth Holmes, was the subject of a great deal of media attention both before and after Theranos collapsed. Their aim was to disrupt the medical diagnostics industry. Again, they preferred to brand themselves as a tech company rather than a medical diagnostics company. They had all the trappings of a Silicon Valley startup. The secrecy, the venture capital investment, the jargon, the branding, the work culture, the appeals to lofty values like family and the desire to change the world. Holmes modelled herself on Steve Jobs to the extent that she dropped out of the same university in the same year and dressed in a similar fashion. But the whole thing turned out to be completely vaporware because her diagnostic instruments didn't work. A lot of people were drawn in by the charisma of Elizabeth Holmes, and this was aided and abetted by the Silicon Valley myths, the idea that every industry on the planet is there for the taking, and that all it takes is one visionary, plus people who recognise the potential in a whole ton of slick marketing, to create a multi-billion dollar business. The technology which was supposed to run many tests on a single drop of blood turned out to be completely unreliable. When the fraud was discovered, the company fell in value from around $10 billion to nothing, and most of the people involved ended up losing nearly everything. The story was told really well in the book Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup, which I recommend if you want to hear more about this. Enjoy the film when it comes out, probably later this year or next. Jennifer Lawrence is starring in it. In hindsight, stories like this should always be evidence for people that there is a wider bubble going on. Now, when I first wanted to write this script, I wrote that I suppose the only reason SoftBank's Vision Fund didn't invest in Theranos is that the company was already under suspicion as a huge fraud by the time that the Vision Fund started spraying cash everywhere. But then I looked it up, and amazingly, SoftBank did invest in Theranos, after it had been exposed as a fraud, by requiring all of its patents in December 2017 through its subsidiary, Fortress Investment Group, in exchange for $100 million in cash. At least they had the sense to insist that it would be a loan, rather than an actual purchase, given that Theranos was being investigated for fraud by the SEC, and had been exposed as having faulty technology months before. So when Theranos was dying, the only people who pumped cash into it by 
an intermediary, were SoftBank. The prominence of Adam Neumann and the founder myth that enabled him to work, which is really foundational to how Silicon Valley works, is a huge part of what has allowed this whole story to unfold. One profile of him in Vanity Fair by Gabrielle Sherman, after the company's collapse began, illustrated this well. Describing how Neumann was briefly worth $4.1 billion and spent lavishly on a $60 million private jet and a $90 million collection of homes, the article says, quote, In a way, the spending made sense because Neumann himself was the product. He pitched himself to investors as a gatekeeper to the rising generation. A new way of working. A new way of living. Work was 24-7. Co-workers were friends. Office was home. Work was life. For baby boomers who experienced office life as cubicles and bad coffee, his message was irresistible. Every investor who walked through was sold, a WeWork executive told me. They saw Neumann as a millennial prophet who did shots of Don Julio during meetings while preaching about the dawn of a new corporate culture, one in which the beer and kombucha flowed and MacBook-toting employees would love coming to work. After sitting with Neumann in his office, outfitted with a Peloton bike, infrared sauna and cold water plunge, Steve Jobs biographer Walter Isaacson told Fast Company that Neumann reminded him of Steve Jobs. Through a combination of egomaniacal glamour and millennial mysticism, the Neumann sold WeWork not merely as a real estate play, It wasn't even a tech company, though he said it should be valued as such. It was a movement, complete with its own slogans. What is your superpower, was one. Adam said that WeWork existed to elevate the world's consciousness. The company would allow people to make a life and not just a living. It was even capable of solving some of the world's thorniest problems. Last summer, some WeWork executives were shocked to discover that Neumann was working on Jared Kushner, that's the son-in-law of Donald Trump, his Middle East peace effort. One of Neumann's first investments came from Benchmark co-founder Bruce Dunleavy, who joined WeWork's board after touring a WeWork with Neumann. Bruce walked in and said, You're not selling co-working, you're selling an energy I've never felt, recalled a former WeWork executive who attended the meeting. JP Morgan's CEO, Jamie Dimon, was also an evangelist. In 2018, JP Morgan led a $700 million bond offering for WeWork. The bank extended Neumann nearly $100 million in loans, and was among a group of banks that provided Neumann with a $500 million personal line in credit. Neumann's most fervent believer, though, was Masayoshi Son, the 62-year-old CEO of Japan's SoftBank Group. Backed by $60 billion from Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi, SoftBank pumped billions into fast-growing but money-losing companies like Uber, DoorDash, and Slack. Masa invested $10 billion in WeWork. Adam later said, I'm crazy, but Masa is crazier. Achieving this blistering growth resulted in barely controlled chaos inside the company. One former senior executive said that the place made the Trump White House look like a well-oiled machine. The company voraciously leased office space with seemingly little strategy except to keep adding locations. To entice new customers, WeWork offered members free rent and bought out their existing leases. We are in a consumption phase like nothing that has ever been seen, Neumann declared at an industry conference in 2015. The promise of riches when the company went public and sold its stock kept many employees from simply quitting. The numbers they threw out at all-hands meetings was that this was going to be a multi-billion dollar company, a former employee said. The money was only part of it, though. Neumann inculcated in his post-collegiate staff a belief that they were members of a vanguard changing the world. Neumann's charisma was intoxicating to be around. If you had to go to war, you wanted him to be your general, said a former executive. His sense of himself is beyond human, recalled another. Neumann paraded through the office barefoot with celebrities like Drake and Ashton Kutcher and had an unnerving ability to maintain eye contact during conversation, lending him the aura of a guru. 
When you're in a room with Adam, he can convince you of almost anything, one employee said. Neumann used mass gatherings to spread his gospel. I think the thing that all of us know is that if you want to succeed in this world, you have to build something that has intention, he said. Every one of us is here because it has meaning, because we want to do something that actually makes the world a better place, and we want to make money doing it, he said on stage at a summer camp in 2013. The crowd of thousands exploded into cheers. A former senior executive reflected on this event. So many of the people there were young and had never worked in a real company. They bought all of it. I realised after I got there that it was a cult. The article also has some more interesting details about that initial meeting between Masayoshi Son and Adam Neumann. During that meeting in the car, according to this article, Massa told Neumann that he didn't think his business plan would work. Neumann's problem was that he needed to think bigger. WeWork shouldn't just be leasing offices to small businesses, it should be leasing office space to all businesses. Massa scribbled on an iPad the number SoftBank was prepared to invest, $4.4 billion. Pumped up by SoftBank's billions, says the article, Neumann's messianism became more like megalomania. Adam's fantasy became a reality, a former WeWork executive said. Neumann sat down with world leaders discussing the Syrian refugee crisis with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and urban planning with London Mayor Sadiq Khan. When Adam got in front of world leaders, it was like he started thinking he was one, according to a former executive. In conversations with people inside and outside the company, Neumann's pronouncements became wilder. He told one investor he'd convinced Rahm Emanuel to run for president in 2020 on the WeWork agenda. Neumann told colleagues he was saving the women of Saudi Arabia by working with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to offer women coding classes. In another meeting, Neumann said that three people were going to save the world. Bin Salman, Jared Kushner, and Neumann. Shortly after the news broke in October 2018 that Saudi agents tortured dissident and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi and carved his body with a bone saw, likely on personal orders from Salman himself, Neumann told George W. Bush's former national security advisor that everything could be worked out if only Bin Salman had the right mentor. Confused, Hadley asked who that person might be. Neumann paused for a moment and said, Me. Reality came crashing down last August when WeWork fired its S1 prospectus to go public, says the article. Investors were shocked by WeWork's spiralling losses and that the company had spent millions on Neumann vanity projects, such as a wave pool company and a startup that sold turmeric coffee creamer. Most damaging, though, were the disclosures that Neumann made $6 million by selling the Wii trademark back to the company itself, and held ownership stakes in buildings that WeWork leased from, essentially paying himself by renting his own buildings. He also gave his wife a large role in choosing his successor. Quote. So this is the really amazing thing about WeWork, is that it managed to completely collapse before COVID-19 even showed up. The company initially wanted to float and go public at this private valuation of $47 billion, which is what SoftBank had valued the company at, according to its investments. But investors in general were extremely wary about Neumann's own personal dealings with the company and its general lack of any kind of sustainable business model. Once the raw details of how much money the company was losing, as well as some more rumours about Neumann's own self-dealing in the company, became clear, people lost confidence. It didn't help that the Wall Street Journal was reporting that Neumann was talking in private about becoming the world's first trillionaire, about being the first person to live forever or becoming president of Israel, and also declaring that WeWork could be the company to end world hunger. In light of all of this, they couldn't find people willing to buy the company's stock at even a $10 billion valuation. And so the IPO, the initial public offering, was shelved, which was the start of WeWork's massive collapse. 
As the IPO was shelved, SoftBank essentially took the reins and forced out Adam Neumann. On September 23rd, the Washington Post reported that SoftBank had lost confidence in his leadership, and on the 24th in, in 2019, Neumann announced that he'd stepped down as CEO. In October 2019, in the wake of the disaster, SoftBank revealed that they would provide another $5 billion to WeWork in order to take 80% ownership of the company. At the time, Masayoshi Son issued a statement. SoftBank is a firm believer that the world is undergoing a massive transformation in the way people work. WeWork is at the forefront of this revolution. WeWork's growth challenges are not unusual for the world's leading technology disruptors. Since the vision remains unchanged, said Masayoshi Son, SoftBank has decided to double down on the company by providing a significant capital infusion and operational support. We remain committed to WeWork, its employees, its member customers and landlords. In November 2019, the company laid off around a third of its workforce in an effort to try and scale back and become profitable. And SoftBank revealed they had lost $9.2 billion in investing in WeWork, almost 90% of their total investments over the last few years, since that 12-minute office meeting and iPad thrashed out deal. In other words, SoftBank bet big on a real estate company that posed as a tech company. It was able to say all the right words, push all the right buttons, push forward all the right branding, leverage this myth of disruption and the maverick founder image of someone who could change the world. It just didn't have a viable business and was, if anything, valued at least 10 times higher than companies in a similar industry that actually made a profit. SoftBank bet big and SoftBank lost. At least that's how it all looked pre-COVID, but as COVID-19 further destroyed any semblance of a business case that WeWork might have had for itself, things went from disastrous to even worse. And the latest news is that SoftBank is now trying to pull out of the deal to buy Neumann shares. SoftBank said that it had no choice but to scrap the rescue deal because WeWork had failed to meet several conditions. It also cited concerns about multiple, new and significant pending criminal and civil investigations. SoftBank said it remained fully committed to the success of WeWork, but several of those conditions were not met leaving SoftBank no choice but to terminate the offer. Neumann is now trying to sue SoftBank, since them scrapping this rescue deal now means that he may never get his $1 billion in shares, which may well be worth less than zero at this point, sold to SoftBank. We'll have to see how that goes. I wouldn't really hold my breath on that one. Uber. We work. Ross Barkin, back in The Guardian in November 2019, made a valuable case that links these companies beyond the fact that SoftBank invested in them. He wrote, quote, WeWork is a junior cousin of Uber, another tech giant that has barely made a cent in profit. Uber is far more nefarious, driving down the wages of drivers and clogging city streets with unsustainable levels of traffic. It's an unregulated cab company, helmed by vulture capitalists. WeWork is comparatively benign, a lousy real estate company conceived by Neumann that tricked a lot of people into thinking it was something more. End quote. There is one last thing that I want to say about WeWork before we wash our hands of it. Remember at the start of the episode I told you about IWG, the competitor to WeWork that was already established and profitable, providing pretty much exactly the same service. The funny thing about that is that IWG started off as an unprofitable company that was burning money too. The rental agreements that they entered into at the height of the dot-com boom in the 2000s also ended up being wildly unprofitable. After that bubble burst, IWG was forced to file for bankruptcy, before gradually restructuring itself to become a smaller, less ambitious, and more profitable organisation. And a lot of the early venture capital investors in IWG also lost money. So not only is the current bubble that's bursting in many areas of tech very reminiscent of the dot-com bubble, 
Not only did Masayoshi Son and SoftBank personally get massively wrapped up in both of these bubbles, but two of the major losers from those bubbles had exactly the same business model. IWG is quite literally the ghost that haunted WeWork. And technological hype, the mythology that has arisen from the relatively few titanic successes of Amazon, Facebook, Google and Netflix, has allowed people to defy the laws of gravity and continue to lose billions in a notional growth phase towards a profit that never arrives. Barkan says that capitalism has always been a deeply flawed way of arranging a society, but big business, until around the 21st century, was at least bound by a few basic laws of monetary gravity. Companies like Ford or US Steel could not lose money for years and years on end, and still continue to exist due to this influx of venture capital. It may be that when we look back in history, we'll look at these companies as the peak of the inflated uh, techno hype surrounding how these startups can be made. And the peak of Silicon Valley hype was allowing these companies to continue for so long after they were extremely unprofitable. So far then, we've talked about how SoftBank's two largest bets have been essentially into businesses that have both posed as tech companies, but whose fundamental business models were flawed, and how both of these bets have lost the Vision Fund billions of dollars. Can it get worse from here? I think the answer may very well be yes, yes it can, because some of the companies that SoftBank has invested in had even worse ideas than the ones we've talked about so far. In the next episode, we'll talk about a whole plethora of these that SoftBank has backed, and why they're also part of this tech hype bubble. And in subsequent episodes, we'll talk about some of the companies whose business models are even more dodgy. You've been listening to Physical Attraction. You can find us on the web at physicalpodcast.com. There you'll find the contact form. Any comments, questions, concerns, feedback, where we can improve the show, let let me know. Uh, If you go through the contact form there on the website, it's up in the tab at the top. I respond to as many emails as possible that I get through there. It's always nice to hear from people. Uh, Twitter, we are PhysicsPod. Facebook, we are Physical Attraction. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash physicalattraction, where you can subscribe for a very small fee and get some bonus episodes that we've recorded in the past. You can also donate to us via the PayPal link that is on the website physicspodcast.com. Some of the things you can do to support the show, of course, are always giving it a review on your platform of choice for podcasts if you enjoy it, and telling as many other people who may be interested in listening to the show about it as you can. All of that helps us keep going. Until next time, then, take care.